For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. The wall of Jerusalem is going up, but not without a struggle. In chapter 4, the problems come from the outside. But here in chapter 5, the problems come from within. Let's join Pastor Ross with a message entitled, The People Cry Out. Two guys go out for dinner, and they both order steak. So the waiter shows up at their table with a platter, and two steaks are on the dish. So one guy reaches, and he takes the smaller steak, and he serves his friend. And his friend says, man, what gives? Man, what's up with that? And, he, and the other guy says, what's your problem? And he says, well, some nerve. You uh, serving me the smaller piece and keeping the larger piece for yourself. And he said, OK, well, what would you have done? And he said, well, I'd like to think that I would have kept the smaller steak for myself and given you the larger piece. And he said, well, there you go. I have the larger piece. <laughs> What's the problem? <laughs> so uh, the joke is funny, but the, uh, the, the content and the reason it's funny, selfishness is not, of course. And selfishness is what brings God's work to a halt here in Nehemiah chapter 5 and really threatens to derail the entire glorious restoration uh, process that God has inspired his people to come back into the promised land and rebuild uh, Jerusalem up from the rubble uh, there, uh, destroyed by the Babylonians some, what, 150 years uh, earlier. Uh, So if you're just joining us, it's Nehemiah who is leading uh, the way to... um, to help the Lord's people rebuild and restore uh, Jerusalem, which is the city of our great king. Now, the spiritual applications have been uh, really abounding throughout these 13 chapters. We'll see uh, the broadest spiritual application for us from the book of Nehemiah is uh, really a picture of the Christian life. We are with Christ building. Now, Jesus said to Peter, when Peter said, uh, answered the question, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, upon this rock, the confession that Jesus is Lord, I will build my church. And so uh, the metaphor for the Christian life and for Christian congregations is to be co-workers with Christ, co-builders, that he's building a kingdom that it's made up of living stones in this living building called the church. And so our job is to work with Jesus every day, 24-7, to be about our Father's business. And that is building up. And the word is edifying, where you get the word uh, edifice or building. We are to edify one another, to strengthen each other's faith. And I mean... The job and the task is at hand tonight. So either you're here as a spectator or you're here as a builder. And so really, 
The measure to find out if you are, are being an effective, productive Christian is to ask yourself, am I co-laboring? Am I building God's kingdom tonight? And that's what Nehemiah is all about, the insights about um, building and working uh, with the Lord. We're co-laborers with Christ. That's 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. And verse 9. So the work of God that he's called each and every one of us to do, of course, uh, will experience opposition um, from as what Ephesians chapter 2 calls it, uh, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now, the spirit behind the opposition is, of course, the evil one. Ephesians chapter 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. Uh, and those who are disobedient, who the Spirit is empowering, um, are, uh, in this story, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And they are the devil's kingpins, really, to lead the opposition. And last we heard, chapter 4, uh, the opposition had surrounded the city uh, of Jerusalem, and um, uh, Israel is, has been surrounded by the adversaries. Um, so we saw last time that first it started off with mockery and intimidation and ridicule, and then ramped up to threats and uh, really physical violence uh, as they surrounded the Lord's city. But in chapter 4, it ended, last time we spoke, uh, on a note of victory. They were watching and guarding and, and working and praying, and watching and guarding and working and praying. And uh, by God's grace, they were able to uh, finish up to half of the project. And so uh, it wasn't working. The opposition from outside the walls was not working. Well, if the enemy fails in his attack from the outside, then he slithers in like a little serpent in to become a part of the process from within to help the work of God to implode uh, from within. And so we're going to see that uh, tonight. And one of his favorite weapons is selfishness. So any community that has uh, people who are all about themselves with selfish ambition and um, uh, just a self-centered way of thinking and being, uh, that organization is going to be in trouble. So chapter 5 divides quite nicely as it talks about the threat from within the congregation. You know, Israel is often called the Lord's congregation. And so the congregation is called there in Jerusalem to rebuild those ruins. Uh, but there's a problem with the members. And there's their self-centered, selfish uh, ambition is abounding, and that threatens the work. The Chapter 5 then divides into three sections. Um, number one, if you're taking notes, the needy cry out. So there's a complaint in verses 1 through 5. And then in verses 6 through 13, uh, point number two, those who are able help out. And then point number three, Nehemiah opts out. And so I'll explain what that means. The three points again, the needy cry out. Those who are able help out. And Nehemiah opts out. So first, the cry that results from an ugly case of selfishness within the congregation. So let's take a look at uh, the cry. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. 
In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards uh, belong to others. So this is the cry that comes to Nehemiah uh, from within the walls, the people uh, doing the work. And so uh, who's crying out, first of all, and who's the great outcry coming against? Let's take a look at that. So the men and their wives who are doing the work here in verse 1 are the ones who are bringing the complaint. They are the ones who are suffering. Now, the wives are mentioned because, uh, well, first of all, there is, there is regular outcry, and then there's mama outcry. All right, so that just brings it up a notch. When the wives are involved, moms are the ones staying home and bearing the brunt of this economic crunch that they're feeling. And so while the husbands are out doing the work night and day on the wall, the families were suffering uh, financially. And so uh, there's a protest here. So the ones lodging this impassioned um, complaint are the Jewish families who are working on the wall, you know, and it's in part because they're, they're doing the Lord's work, and so they can't do their day-to-day jobs where they can harvest their grain and make their bread and all of that, but the troubles are a lot deeper than that. Uh, so we see also that there are three groups because you see some are saying this, some are saying that, some are say- saying this. So we know there are three uh, groups, but the bottom line is they're all hurting financially. They all can't uh, make ends meet. And so that is the problem they're bringing to Nehemiah, saying, hey, you want us to work and build this wall and be productive here for the Lord? Uh, we are not making it. And uh, the husbands and the wives bring this outcry. Uh, three different groups, but the bottom line is, as I said, uh, they are suffocating beneath their debt, material need, uh, and they're at a breaking point. Now, the outcry is noticed not against the occupiers. It's against their Jewish brothers. Now, what does that mean? These are the Jewish families that are involved with the same work. They're working shoulder by to shoulder, but there were some families that were well off. And they were complaining because those families that were well off were part of the problem. First of all, number one, they weren't being generous and helping when they saw family in need. But number two, and this was salt in the wound, they were exploiting them, their, their Christian brothers, in the, in the sense that we would be taking this as, they were exploiting their Jewish brethren in their poverty and in their time of trouble, they were trying to make some money off of them. And so we're going to take a look at that. And so that's what's going on. They're loaning them money at interest. And when they would default, they would uh, have them mortgage their homes and even sell their children to the believing brethren who are, are, are Jews there. And so uh, the, the three groups, group number one, let's take a look at them, verse two. It's fairly simple. Um, 
they say, we've got large families. That was the Jewish thing in the ancient days. It was a blessing from God, and so they had lots of kids. And so, but here's what mom and dad are saying. We got lots of kids, and that equals a lot of mouths to feed, and we're here working night and day on the wall, and we need to go get grain in our fields, but we can't do that because we're building this wall. So first time, first here, we see clearly an oversight, I think, on Nehemiah's part, but we'll find out at the end of the chapter, he's helping hundreds of needy families uh, with all kinds of resources. And so uh, that some slip through the crack, that just happens in large ministries. Uh, but, but now that he knows, you know, he couldn't fix a problem that he didn't know about. And so that, that happens so often in large congregations. Uh, the, the pastoral team doesn't even know there's a particular need, and it goes unmet simply because they're unaware. But now Nehemiah knows, and so that's part of the, part of the, the good thing that's going to result from this is that Nehemiah becomes aware while we're not reaching all the families who are doing the work and need uh, some, some assistance. So it, it really is a failure of love. You know, Luke chapter 10, verse 27, about these families who can see other families in the work of God and not reach out and help hurting families. It's the greatest failure of all because the greatest commandment of all is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love others with the same kind of love that you have for yourself. And so if that is the greatest commandment, failure to do it is the greatest failure of the Christian life. And so they are guilty, some of these families, of, of just that. First John chapter 3, verse 17 put it this way. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can you say the love of God is in their heart? James will question their salvation. James says in chapter 2, verse 15, if a brother or sister is without uh, clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go, go, go in peace, I'll pray for you, be warm and be filled, uh, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? And so... Group one that brings their cry to Nehemiah could have been eliminated if some of the families were sensitive, caring, compassionate, and doing what Philippians chapter uh, 2, verse 4 says. Each one of you is not just to look to your own interests, but to the needs and interests of others. This is the Christian life. And so, um, just like in Acts chapter 2, all the believers were together and had everything in common selling possessions and goods they gave to anyone as they had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and continued um, meeting and with uh, glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor with all the people. And the Lord added uh, to their number daily those who were being uh, saved. There was a special season there, the, the Feast of Pentecost, the holiday, Everybody came to Jerusalem. They ended up, many thousands of them, getting saved. They did not want to go home. 
to their foreign land. They wanted to stay. So for a season, considering the work that God was doing, uh, the Christians, for their fellow Christians, were moved to take care of them. They were their brother's keepers. And so it wasn't just about what they owned or their possessions. They would sell what they had and everybody shared. Nobody considered that they owned anything. They were just like, hey, let me take care of you. Because it was a special season, they always didn't sell everything and give their possessions to each other. But for this time in Jerusalem, there was this big need and and Christians stepped up. And for this season, when God was calling the Jewish people to restore the walls, to build together, to keep the enemy at bay... They needed to watch over each other. So you have one family over here who's got plenty of food and and another family over here that's mortgaging out out their properties and selling off their kids and they can't put food on the table. And this family's like, well, you know, maybe you need to work hard or too bad God hasn't blessed you or whatever twisted thinking there was in not reaching out and being some practical help. Uh, Some people call uh, what I just read from Acts chapter 2 about the church um, communism. Communism is what's yours is mine. Communism, to have all things in common, is what's mine is yours. There's a big difference between the attitude of what yours, what you have is really mine Instead of the free um, generosity of saying, what I have is yours. So just say, you know, I'm a steward of what God has given me. And I hold on to those things loosely because I'm to consider sharing and helping and co-laboring. There's something more important than just me. There's this wall, but it's not a wall. The Lord says, we are God's building. It's all about people, not just about my own interests. Interest. So group number two here, uh, verse three, uh, says, we're mortgaging our properties to buy food. And so uh, with these, these guys owned land, uh, but the need for food was so great because we find out in verse three that there's a famine. They borrowed against their own properties. So prepare to get grieved, all right? Here's how the conversations go. To their brothers, hey, bro, We're serving God together. Hey, man, God is doing a work in our midst. We're getting the wall up, and the enemies are being held back by the Holy Spirit. And, man, can you loan me some money, man, to get through this time? Uh, You know, so I can have a few shekels to put some food on the table and get through this terrible time as we rebuild the city of God together, brother. And the brother says, Okay, uh, let's use your house or your field or your vineyard as collateral. You default repayment, I take your house. This is from another brother. See, that's the outcry. Our brothers, our flesh and blood. These are our, this is the family of God. What is going on? One writer said, the devil doesn't need Sanballat, Tobiah, or Geshem when he's got this kind of attitude in the mix. And so Warren Wiersbe put it this way. Uh, Selfishness means putting myself at the center of everything and insisting on getting what I want when I want it. It means exploiting others so I can be happy and taking advantage of them so I can have my own way. First of all, 
Jews were prohibited from charging uh, interest to fellow Jews, especially if they were poor. There were all kinds of laws about not taking as security a poor man's cloak or anything from a poor man because that's all he had, right? So the law protected people like that. In fact, the word uh, in the Hebrew for interest is neshek, and it means to bite, to take a bite out of. And now, commercial interest or to make profit is okay, scripturally, but you had to watch yourself with needy people, you're not to, you are to show mercy and grace and understanding and patience, never to take advantage of somebody's disadvantage. And so group number three just adds, hey, we've borrowed money from the brothers to pay our taxes. By the way, Nehemiah, to your boss, the Persian king, Right, who's occupying us, and we can't keep up with it. So uh, with the property's mortgage and there's no cash flow, uh, we got to sell off our kids. Now, that's what they did. Uh, they they kind of had a debtor's prison kind of thing where you could say, okay, my teenage girl will come and help out with your household chores, and they would say, okay, we'll take her. Now, he, he, these are brothers. In the same faith, same God, same Lord, same destiny, same heaven. But yeah, sure, we'll take your kid from you. So ironically, these families had it better in Persia, out in the world, than in their own community of faith. And, you know, God helped the church where somebody could come in and say, you know, I had it better out in the world. People treated me nicer. The church needs to be a place where people can find refuge from the common, self-centered, sinful practices of the world, which wasn't happening here in Jerusalem. You know, we went to a church once, and the kids came home one Wednesday night after youth group, and they said, uh, this youth group, only the cool kids are popular in this youth group. the, The youth pastor favors the cool kids. And the cool kids have kind of this little click and we just don't really fit. And we can sense that. I went to the pastor so fast, I don't even think an hour went by. I mean, I was right there just saying, what? This is the church. My kids can't come in and feel what they felt at a secular school in junior high. We can't come into the church and then have guys womanizing and checking out the chicks. That's what happens out there. But that's what they were doing inside the walls of Jerusalem. It was just as bad, if not worse, as the world. That's what the world would do. You know, hey, I don't have any money left. How about your fields? Well, I mortgaged the fields. You got a vineyard? From a brother. This is not uh, the way it should be. And so how scandalous, really. The church needs to be a refuge. And so a nice summary there in verse 5 of the insanity and the hypocrisy and the perversion of what was going on with the, within the family of God is this. Here's a paraphrase of verse 5. They say, how sick and wrong is this? 
that those who are making life so much more difficult and unbearable are our own brothers and sisters in the work of the Lord. How would they like it to lose one of their sons or daughters? Our children are just as precious to us as theirs are to them. We are stuck and powerless in this misery because all of our assets, every last penny, is signed over to them. And they're pointing to Christian families, okay? Believing Jewish families. I'm just trying to bring it home to a congregation of believers. Uh, So the complaint is lodged. Verse 6. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury interest from your own countrymen. Where's the Israel spirit, the the national pride? So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they couldn't find anything to say. I love that verse nine. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our non-Jewish enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let your exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part, that just means 1% a month or 12% annually uh, of the money, the grain, the new wine, and the oil. We'll give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. All right. So the needy cry out, and now those able are going to help out. And what a concept. (laughs) You know, they're going to give to the Lord's work. And a lot of people, like these Jewish brethren, will say, listen, if I give to the work of the Lord, that means less for me. All right? Yeah. Well, it doesn't, it seems like it'll be less for you when you give to the Lord's work. But the Lord is not a debtor to any man. He always outgives those who give. You know, that's Luke chapter 6. It's just a promise. That's the way it is. And so there's going to be some repentance here. So the problem uh, is going to be resolved as Nehemiah first has to become angry. Now, uh, and it says very angry. And well, he should be. He should be very angry. Now, anger is not a sin in in of itself, right? Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and 26 says, in your anger... Do not sin. So it's that 
fruit of anger oftentimes, or anger can just be a sin if it's a flared up sinful temper kind of thing. But there's something called righteous indignation, which I think Christians use way too often as an excuse of, of them losing their cool. So, oh, yes, it was righteous indignation. You know, you don't even know what that means, you know, because um, I don't. You know, righteous indignation just sort of kind of means, you know, angry at the evil or the injustice out there. And so... Uh, this is righteous indignation because Nehemiah can point to chapter and verse and say, uh, this is wrong, right? And the chapter and verse would be Exodus 22 and verse uh, 25. So let's watch a godly man handle his moral outrage, uh, which will give us some insights here. Uh, and because it's going to affect uh, some change uh, in the people. So let's take a look at that. First of all, does he react right away? No, there's a, there's a pause there, you know? Instead of reacting in the heat of the moment, Nehemiah takes time. He, there's a pause there. I can just picture it. He's doing what his mom taught him. <sighs> one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, right? Or one 1,000, two 1,000, whatever, right? Or he's taking a walk. He's doing something. But the Hebrew is very interesting. Well, first of all, Proverbs, what is it, 29, says, a fool gives full vent to his anger. Nehemiah's no fool. So he's really hot-headed. He's, he's mad, very angry. So the Hebrew says he's going to take counsel with himself. That's the literal meaning of the Hebrew, right? So he's not just counting one Mississippi, two Mississippi. He's doing something. He's talking to himself. He's calming himself down. The New English uh, Bible version says uh, that he, I mastered my feelings. He calmed down so he could think. He took a moment to think this matter over seriously. That's what's going on. Uh, one writer said, when your heart is pounding and your adrenaline is rushing, the best position for your mouth is in the closed position. <laughs> in the heat of the moment, man alive, will you not text and email in the heat of the moment and then press send? That is a mistake. Type your email, take a couple hours, come back and thank the good Lord that you did not press send yet. Amen? Amen. Okay. I just thought, you know, come on. You can relate to that, you know? I know you can relate to that. Thank you. Now I got a, a, a delayed reaction is a good reaction. Better late than never in this case. So... Don't discipline a child in anger. Do not talk to your spouse when you can't see straight. That is crazy. You're going to say things that she or he will remember for 10 or 20 years or more. And all the husband said, amen. That's two strikes for me. I'm going to pitch you another one in just a second. All right. Now, you know, so he takes a moment to counsel himself, right? Now, notice it doesn't result in smiles, warm fuzzies, and soft tones. 
He's going to talk to himself, talk himself down. What's the right thing to do? There's still going to be heat and emotion and, and, and a fiery accusation here. So, you know, he wants definitive action and it needs to take place. So verses 7 through 12 is an accusation, uh, a proposal, and a response. So the accusation first. He points out the wrongdoing. Just the facts. Look at that, how clean it is. Do you know how many dozens of sentences he could have said? Instead, he just said, you're exacting interest on fellow Jews. Unbelievable. He didn't even say unbelievable. He didn't have to. They felt it, right? Now, now, now look at this. He can point to Exodus 22, Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 23. He just says, here's the problem. You know, there are a lot of symptoms. He could have picked all kinds of symptoms. Look, listen, marriage therapy, this happens all the time. Two people sit on the couch. What's the problem? Well, here's the problem. It starts with this, then it explodes to that, then it overlaps to this, and there's such a smokescreen of issues, and there's so many of them. But if you listen carefully, there's really only one or two problems from which all the other problems come. This is number one wisdom in problem resolution is state in a concise way, identify the problem in a sentence or two. And you will find that you will get to the heart of the matter. You know, like in a marriage, you can say vows were broken. There are trust issues. Instead of dragging the poor counselor through verbal hell and all of this stuff with this and that and the other other night she said this and he did this and he acted rude. It all is because of one thing that happened. State the problem. Stop with the buckshot of this and that and this and that and this and that. State the problem. Go after the problem. One sentence. That's what he says. Here's your problem. You're taking advantage of your Jewish brothers. Bam. Well, that got their attention there. And so the major offenders are gathered in so Nehemiah could deal with them in your text. It says, deal with them. You don't just ignore problems, you deal with them. So here's the paraphrase of verse eight. Uh, so, he, so he says, here's what he says. Check this out, Nehemiah speaking. Since we've been allowed to come back by God's gracious hand to the promised land, our captors let us go We're bending over backwards to bring in our fellow Jews back to the promised land, the homeland of Israel, to help them get free and escape the the yoke of the pagan Persian oppressors, only to have them trade their yoke for the yoke of bondage that we, their brothers, put on their shoulders. How wrong is that? That's what he's saying there. So... First step in conflict resolution is just state the problem really concise and clear. The second one, there's an appeal to morality and love and logic. Does this make sense? Put yourself in their shoes. Hey, come on back to the promised land. And when you get here, you're going to be so happy because we're going to exploit you and use you into the ground and then get rich off of you. Welcome home. (laughs) Not good. So... 
There was dead silence there, verse 8. I, I love that verse. Uh, there was dead silence because there was no defense for their actions, and they knew it. One writer put it this way. The best sign that there will be a positive outcome here is that the guilty parties are not firing back their nonsense and defending themselves. They're actually just listening and processing what Nehemiah has to say. You know, listen, if you want to grow, if you want God to use your life when there's a constructive criticism that you know in your heart, they caught you red-handed. And they said, hey, listen, in one sentence, you, you have slandered someone. Just listen it out all the way to the end, and you don't have to react and defend yourself. You're never going to get anywhere. Nehemiah probably just smiled and, and was so encouraged that they were listening and quiet and not being defensive and uh, putting up the shields and, and all of that. And so Nehemiah continues. He's encouraged. Verse 9, he says, really, this is what you're doing. What you're doing is flat out wrong. How about, and look at verse 9. How about all the unbelievers who are watching us treat each other without love and compassion? This is a terrible witness to outsiders and an offense to God. What about stumbling on believers with that kind of nonsense, you know? What did Paul say to the Jews in Romans chapter 2, or Jewish Christians, saying, he says, when you behave as a hypocrite, God's name is blasphemed by unbelievers day and night because of your bad behavior. And Paul in Romans 2 was really quoting Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 5. So he said, how about a little fear of the Lord you know, of what you're doing in the eyes of God. So here comes the proposal, verses 10 and 11. Uh, no more charging interest. In fact, refund them their 12% annual uh, interest that you've been taking from them and give them back their property now, all caps, just tonight, done, right? And so really, this is the idea of the year of Jubilee. Are you familiar with that? It was written into... Uh, the law of Moses, Leviticus 25 and verse 9. The year of Jubilee was seven cycles of seven years. So every 49 years, ultimately to show that God was the owner of everything, they were to um, cancel all debts. All slaves or servants were to go free. So actually all slaves and servants were to go free every seven years. But the year of Jubilee all land, vineyards, everything just goes back to the original owner and they start all over again. And so really, Christ on the cross, it is finished, is the fulfillment of the year of Jubilee. And because of what Christ has done is the perpetual Jubilee. Jubilee just means ram, the sound of a ram's horn. That's what it means, Jubilee, is the, the, the sound of celebration that your debts are paid from the cross, you are able to forgive those who have wronged you because your sins have been forgiven. And so the year of Jubilee was to bring joy to those who are oppressed. And from that joy, they're able to release uh, others who were indebted to them. Beautiful response in verse 12. Um, 
they hasten to agree with Nehemiah's uh, correction. Wouldn't that be nice if leaders all did that when they were called on the carpet? You know, they just admit the wrong and they just say, hey, yeah, you're right, we're wrong. Well, knowing that as British poet, what's his name? Samuel Johnson. He is the one who said the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? What does that mean? It means that there are some in hell tonight who were intending to get saved, to come to Jesus and repent of their sins. You know, they exist. It went through their mind. Oh, I need to do that. I need to get around maybe when this gets old and boring and all of that, or I get older, right? So Nehemiah knows the human heart. The, the, the spirit is willing, as Jesus said, but the flesh is weak. So he's going to bring out some uh, good measure of accountability. So, you know, he says, okay, bring out the notary publics here and let's get a statement. Okay, get the stamp going. Okay, yes, you are right. We will stop doing that and we'll give them back all their property. Bring out the Bible. Put your hand on it, buddy. Put your right hand up in front of everybody here. Okay, repeat after me. I, Jewish landowner, <laughs> am going to give all the property back to them, right? And he brings out some pretty important influential witnesses and says, say it again in front of all of them. And so uh, just for good measure, he throws out like a little curse. It's not really a curse. It's a prophetic warning is what it is. So here's what he does in verse 13. He says, um, as with the Jewish prophets, they would act out and do little symbolic things uh, that they were teaching, thus saith the Lord, and then they do a symbolic thing. So what he did is he takes his robe, and in the robes, they had little folds that they would use as pockets, and they had a belt that kind of held it open like that. So what he did essentially was open it up, and whatever was in there spilled out. It was a little drama, you know. And, and, and here's what he, he's saying. He shakes out the folds and, and all the pockets are emptied. And he says, may the Lord empty the pockets of every man here who fails to follow through with the promise. Or another way of putting it, if you don't abide by your promise and assist those you've helped impoverish, may God teach you what it's like to be penniless and in great need. Well, not really a curse. It's just like, listen, God called you on the carpet, you admitted it, and you swore in front of everybody to stop doing it. Now, if you go back and secretly think God is not going to see what you're doing, just know this. He's going to teach you a lesson, and maybe it'll involve being dirt poor and see how you like it, right? Let's finish up. Here comes some inspiration for these guys. He's going to say, follow my example. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, Esther's husband, when I was appointed to be their governor of the land of Judah, so he's the governor now, until the 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, the, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels, of 40 pieces of silver, uh, from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for work. We didn't acquire any property or land. 
Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, oh my God, uh, for all I have done for these people. So this finishes out the chapter. The needy cried out, and the, uh, those who are able now are helping out. And Nehemiah's example here, he opts out. He's opting out of what could be his as a government official in housing and food allowances and what have you. So turns out that Nehemiah is going to be the governor for 12 years here in Jerusalem. And he chooses to forego the customary um, food and housing perks and allowances that government officials would have. Why? Because the way you get them is to tax the people, you see. So he said, the people are struggling. There's it's not the right time or situation for that. So I'm going to forego that. Sounds just like Paul the Apostle, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, God has appointed that those who preach the gospel make their living from the gospel. But I'm not going to use that right. Because in this situation, we've got hucksters to the right and scams, scam artists to the left. It will be good for me to just work, support myself, and not ask the church for any money. And he did that out of love for the gospel and for the people. So Nehemiah and the Apostle Paul have a same sort of um, uh, integrity, uh, if you will. So it seems that Nehemiah has some personal resources. How is he paying for all of that? Well, the king, Esther's husband, <laughs> Esther's making sure that the king is favorable toward the work in her beloved Jerusalem. Probably, commentators say. And also, this guy had some savings. He worked for the, the king. He was a right-hand man to the king. So he's got some personal resources that he's using, uh, no doubt. So here in verse 15, he contrasts his behavior with the harsh and demanding behavior of his predecessors, the worldly governors of Jerusalem before him. Uh, they instituted all kinds of high taxes so that they could live in luxury. You know, who cares about the people? You know, I live in the governor's mansion, you know? So up with the taxes on everything. And uh, that's exactly what was happening there. Now, Nehemiah didn't want to be like them, right? He didn't want to be like, listen, some thoughtless officials who think, you know, just because I'm in a position, I can take advantage of the people. Like, for example, uh, one person who comes to mind, one official, Nehemiah didn't want to be like him. This official, in my thinking, has spent $44,351,777.12 on vacations alone. This person I'm thinking of. The Judicial Watch has said two months, just two months of golf games have cost $4 million. Who foot the bill for that? Those who are having a hard time paying their rent, putting food on the table, and paying their bills. That's who sent this official to the golf course and helped pay for 
million dollars. But wait, there's more. <laughs> I digress. I'm not going down that road. Now, Nehemiah and Paul are men of character. They don't do things like that. So verse 15, he separates himself. He says, those kind of guys lord it over, see in your text. Remember, Jesus said, don't be like Gentiles who lord their power. It, it means to just kind of uh, boss people around with a condescending attitude to take advantage of the prestige of your position. Don't do that. That's what people who don't know God do in the world. And so he's, Nehemiah says in verse 15, not me, I did not do that. And why not? Oh, because I love the people so much. No. Because I just felt it was wrong. You know, it's just not the right thing to do. No. I just have a love for God's work. I didn't want to, No. What kept you from acting like a worldly governor and taking advantage of your position? Fear of the Lord. I had reverence for God. And reverence for God, the fear of the Lord, that you are going to stand before God one day and that God is watching you and knows your heart and the secret of your motives, that ought to guide every discipline of the Christian life. You should be telling yourself no, not just because that's the wrong thing to do or you're going to hurt somebody, but because of God. It was Joseph who said day after day to Mrs. Potiphar, who said, you are very handsome, and, 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 and you get the story, and she's trying to seduce the young man. And he says, how could you ask me to do such a thing against God? Not even against your husband. He mentions the husband for first. He says, how can I sin against my God? Reverence for God ought to get you to straighten up Walk the straight and narrow path and fly right. Amen. If it's one sentence, it's the fear of God. It's the respect that God is all eyes. You know those creatures before the throne? They have wings and they're all kinds of just beautiful creatures that we're, we've yet to see. We're going to see them. But they're covered with eyes. They're covered with eyes on their wings, on the front of their wings. They have six wings. And on the fronts, all eyes. And on the back, all eyes. And what is that saying? They're before the throne. They serve an all-seeing, all-knowing, ever-present God who knows people from the inside out. Paul says when Jesus comes, he's going to judge the intents and the motives and the secrets of men's hearts. Now, our secrets, they're covered over. They're redeemed. But he's still going to evaluate everything but not in a way that shames because whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall not be put to shame. So whatever happens in our evaluation, we don't get red-faced. There may be a tear at loss, but we don't get red-faced. He does not shame us. You will not be embarrassed in heaven. It's a, it's a theological impossibility. And all God's people said, amen. Phew. And amen to that, right? Because there's enough in this room to embarrass a nation. Right? Well, no, you know what I mean. <laughs> Furthermore, he says, and we're almost done here, he says, reverence for God, and instead, uh, we, I'm not asking you to do anything that we didn't do. I love this. He said, we rolled up our sleeves. Look at verse 16. We didn't personally profit. We didn't make, make, get rich off of you guys. Um, now, and, and then furthermore, verse 17, 
We didn't line our pockets, we emptied them. And I like this, the usual dinner count. He said, by the way, and, and this is not without you, this isn't from your taxes. This is what came out of my pocket. 150 people every night for dinner. But commentators say that menu can feed six to 800 people. So he had an open house and anybody in need came to eat. Right? So he was doing, there were people who didn't know about it and people that he didn't know needed. So now that got cleared up too. And so I like the menu, by the way. Beef, lamb, and chicken. You could choose, right? (laughs) Apparently there was no vegan options. I'm sorry. (laughs) Number, uh, yeah, moving on. We supplied our own... (laughs) I didn't mean that bad. I mean, there was just a lot of meat there back in the day. We supplied our own needs and we were generous to many, right? Out of consideration for the heavy burdens on the citizens. Now, so he says, follow my example. There's a quick prayer and some people get rubbed the wrong way with it. This is Nehemiah's journal. You're reading Nehemiah's journal. He's not telling you about his good deeds. This is a reflection to God, his private thoughts. His private thoughts to God is saying, God, I I pray that the good deeds that I have done would be acceptable in your sight and remember me. You know, that's what he's saying there. It's not anything weird. I mean, Jesus said, do not do your good deeds to impress people like so many hypocrites do because when they do and someone goes, ooh, wow, that's your reward. You won't be seeing anything in heaven for that one. That's out the window, gone. Hope you enjoyed it. When they all went, ooh, wow, you're spiritual. You know, that was your reward, done. Uh, But he said, if you do it in secret and nobody knows, there was a little cha-ching in heaven, and your father who sees what you do in secret will openly reward you publicly on that day when he evaluates our works. Oh, that's going to be fun. So there's an incentive to like run around doing good deeds without anybody knowing anything about it. That's awesome. And so all he's saying is, may all that I'm doing out of reverence for you and your people be remembered and be acceptable, God, in your sight. Um, so with this, I close. Listen, it's Christmas time. It's the year of Jubilee. Your debts, Jesus came to bear in his own body and pronounced you paid. Past, present, and future, your sins are gone. Now in response to that, are there people in the congregation that you could bless and encourage, that you have some kind of resource that somebody in this church needs and is dying to have, a friend just a friend to love them and pray with them and spend time with them? Do you have that ability? They're impoverished in that way and you're working in the kingdom of God, building the wall and they're on the other side. How about benevolence ministry? The church picks families all year round, especially Thanksgiving and Christmas. And we deliver uh, all kinds of things, food and, and help with all kinds of things. Do you have resources? Give to the church. The church is giving. A woman came up to us and said to the pastors, 
I have some resources. I want two families. Give me two families' names. I want to bless them. She has resources. And we gave the names. She's a Nehemiah. She's a Nehemiah, right? She, she is working on the wall and she notices there must be somebody here who's having trouble putting food on the, or wrapping presents for Christmas. And I have resources. They're my brothers and sisters. I want to give some of my resources over to them. That's the whole lesson of Nehemiah that we could take away from chapter five. I am not going to be those stingy, tight, selfish brethren in the story that just are so happy that I have what I need while everybody else in the church or some people in the church are in need, especially at Christmas. You've been forgiven. Forgive. Is there somebody that you're withholding your love for because they've wronged you and you're going to keep your love? You know, you know they're dying for something from you, but you won't give it. Stop that. It's Christmas time. It's the year of Jubilee. Your sins, past, present, and future are wiped out. Now in that joy, you go out and stop being the, the brethren by the wall who's just all happy that everything's cool under your Christmas tree. You go out, you give that love, you be that friend, you make that offering so that we apply the truth that we're learning here in Nehemiah chapter five, amen? amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love. We pray, Father, that you'd help us to be like Nehemiah, just, just an open house, uh, open-handed and generous spirit to bring love to those who are thirsting for it and friendship and uh, practical needs, Lord, and especially at Christmas time. We want to be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.